0: Amen. Okay, reading of the word comes from Romans, the fifth chapter. If you would stand for the reading of God's word, remembering we stand in reverence to the word and to the God who has given this word to us. Fifth chapter, Romans, if you open your Bible and you're in Matthew, keep going to the left. If you get to Corinthians, you got to go back to the right. If your phone isn't working too well, you're in really bad shape, but let's begin with verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. With that, we end the reading of God's word, and you may be seated. There are two sections as I see it to this passage and the first one picking up on what we talked about last week because there is there is an order to the catech- catechism and this is not just something i've made up it's one of the key landmark phrases of the Reformation and all of it. But it is justification by faith alone. That's one of the solos of the Reformation. Sometimes that word solo can mean above or supreme as in uh, solo Christus, Christ is above or supreme over all things. Here it does mean alone by itself. We are justified by faith alone. And this is what the first part of this passage talks about. It begins with a word, therefore. And you know, wherever you see that word, therefore, you ask yourself, why is it there for? And you go back and you have to find the reason. Well, there are two reasons that I see. One is in verse 12 where you have another, therefore, that builds upon Paul's argument that we are justified by faith through through Christ as Abraham was as the way by which we have peace with God and therefore he says therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned this is our predicament it's somewhat lost upon people in our day and even in the people in the church we are uh, in our culture, we are, pelag- <laughs> we are people who believe that all people are basically good. Heard an advertisement for a movie that's coming out about Christmas, about Santa. And one of the taglines in that movie is this. you got to have Santa because we have to remind the people how good they are. And I'm going, no! No, they didn't actually say that. I said, yeah, that's our culture. How good you are. You know, good little Johnny, good little Jane, good little people. And then there are those in the church that says, yeah, well, we're, we're ill, we're sick, we desperately, we have a bad cold, but we're not dead. And all you need is just a little ounce of wellness and you can become a Christian. You know, just, just one act of believing and that's it. Well, they forget the passage that's right here before this section, Romans 3, that says, There is no one who is good, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's just a reminder. There's nothing good about us. And that's what verse 12 is telling us. Then you get to verse 15. That's our predicament. Verse 15, but, and again, anytime you see that word but, Highlight it in your smartphone or underline it in your Bible because that's a contrast. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The gift brings healing and it is a gift. It's not something you work for. It's not something you earn. It is simply presented to you, given to you. You receive Christ in the sense of a passivity. You receive Christ and therefore you believe. That's the idea. It's a gift. And it recognizes that all of us are deeply flawed. We are sinners. We are dead to God unless, unless God does something in our life. And that's his free gift. I not you also notice the difference between those two verses. The one in 12 when it talks about sin came into the world it said that all men or all people have been affected by it. When you get to verse 15 and it talks about the gift of grace he says the many. You see the difference? You know you aren't justified simply because you're a sinner. You aren't justified simply because you die. There are all who are sinners but many who are given the gift. Now that leads up to the question how many are many? 51% of the total population of the world between the beginning and when Christ comes back. That's many. 80%? Will there be a great time at the end in which uh, great numbers and multitudes of people will come to Christ and experience that gift? Uh, that's never really clearly explained but it is the idea that there are some who will not experience that gift of grace but that justification comes by faith alone and why by faith alone this is verse 18 and 19 of chapter 5 therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men so and you, there's an alternate translation in the ES, ESV they have a footnote and it says that, as the trespass of one led to condemnation for all men and that makes it a reference back to Adam. Remember Eve never gets blamed because Adam clearly knew the difference had heard the word of God and acted in rebellion. As the trespass of Adam led to condemnation. And that's the state we're in. It then goes on. So one act of righteousness, and the footnote again reminds us, the act of one, the righteous act of one, leads to justification of life for all men. Now, again, because of verse 15 when he says it's only for many, you can't make a universal statement on that, that all men will be saved. But it will mean that for all those who have received the gift, they have been given a gift of righteousness. And therefore, this is why it's by faith alone. By Adam, we're condemned. And we can't work out of it. You remember the little drawing I gave you last week? Of course you do. Why would you forget it? This is your bank account, better known as B.A. This is zero. All your sins down here, you come to Christ and you're brought up here to zero because he's paid the penalty for all your sins. And all that means is that you are now guilt-free. It's kind of like those foods you eat that have no preservatives in them. This is guilt-free. The second part is, though, God applies to you the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, you have a zillion marks of righteousness in your account. And therefore, Paul says, in this you are given righteousness and life. Now it is possible to take that phrase and turn it into a life of righteousness, but most translators and commentators will tell you he's talking about righteousness and life. It leads to justification, that is to be declared righteous and to life. You know, this has been the argument of Paul throughout this whole epistle. He, be, he began in the very beginning uh, when <clears throat> he's starting this out. And he says the theme of his book, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, back to, because this is November and we're past the Reformation, I'll go back to Luther because he's a great example. Luther was bugged by this. How can I be righteous? How can I make myself righteous? Well, he was reading the Vulgate, which is a Latin translation of the Greek, and the word they used in the Vulgate was a Latin word that meant to be made righteous. And therefore, righteousness in the Roman Catholic Church was, you did things that made you right before God. And God, especially in the sacraments would infuse you with righteousness. And the longer you did this and you observed the sacrifices and obeyed the Ten Commandments and did the great the things that the church told you to do, you would grow in righteousness. And therefore, when you died, if you had enough righteousness, you would be ushered into heaven or you would go to purgatory to pay off that which you in which you were deficient. And Luther was going, how do I know? How many good things do I have to do? What's the level? When do I tip the scales, the balance of the scales to my favor? And the answer is, there's no way that you'll ever know. And then, because Luther was a scholar, he went back to the original Greek. And he looked at the word in the Greek for it and it is to be declared righteous. That is not that you are righteous but someone says you are righteous. You are without guilt. And all of a sudden he says it's like my eyes were opened and I was born again. And I saw the beauty of what Paul was saying. I am saved by righteousness but not my righteousness it's the righteousness of somebody else it's the righteousness of Christ applied to my life in order that he would God could declare that I am not only guilt free but that I have all the righteousness I need everything and all of a sudden he said I don't have to work for it do I? I don't have to worry about whether I have enough righteousness of my own because the righteousness I have is not my own. It is Christ's righteousness. And on that, the Reformation began. And we are the ones who are the beneficiaries of that. If you want to know why I come back to this over and over and over again, there are two reasons. One, this is lost in our church today. Again, we believe if you walk down the center aisle, if you raise your hand, you say a prayer, God declares you righteous. No. And next to that, I, I like Peter's in 2 Peter. says, I am reminding you of the things you already know. Why? The essence behind that is we forget. We do something wrong and we say, how can God forgive me? How could God ever treat me as a child. Well, it's right here. First of all you're guilt free. And second of all you have the righteousness of Christ applied to your life. That's who you are. You know why you can so freely come to God when you really have messed up? And if you are like anybody else this week you've really messed up. I'm not asking for a show of hands or for what you've done, but I know you've really messed up. The reason you can do it is because no guilt. And in God's sight, because of his son, you are absolutely righteous. You have been justified by faith alone. That's a, his dis, stupendous discovery, and it has to be the stupendous discovery of everyone who is a Christian. Then Paul goes on, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. It's a parallel to verse 18, but it is the disobedience of one, the the obedience of one. And this is why it's important to remember your salvation is not merely because of the cross and Jesus shedding his blood. But the reason... He could shed his blood as he's perfectly obedient to the Father throughout all of his life. And I, I constantly actually think about that. Amazing. A little two-year-old, learning, uh, maybe one, learning how to walk. And, he, he, you know, he's human like us. He learns everything like we did. And so he went out and walked, and uh, suddenly he, he uh, slipped, slipped, stepped. He stumbled over his sandal, just like I stumble over my tongue. He stumbled over his sandal and he fell down and scratched his knee. You know, let's not make him something he wasn't. But he never said, oh, yeah. And he said, boy, I'm glad that's over. <laughs> he simply said, he, he reacted in his innocence, in his perfection. For 30 some years, 33, 34 years he went through every second of life not disobeying his father or not disobeying the law or not sinning you haven't made it since the the moment you woke up up today but he did it for 33 years therefore he's the perfect sacrifice and therefore God can take his perfect life and apply it to you doesn't that free you up? Doesn't that help you when, you, when you're in, in issues of, uh, of your own sinfulness and things that go on? When you uh, use the na- name of the Lord in vain in one way or the other? Now, we embody a brokenness and he gives to us our wholeness. That's what happens. That's where question 62 in the Catechism comes into play. But why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? The answer, because the righteousness which can stand before the judgment of God must be perfect throughout and wholly conformable to the divine law Whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. Why? Because we have a sin nature. Even the most stellar thing that you can do and you think, oh, what what a good boy am I? Well, right there, that's pride, which tells you it's tainted. Anything you do has that taint of sin and therefore, Cannot hold up before the righteousness or before the perfection of God, it must be wholly conformable to the divine law that's it. The second is the result that comes from it in verse twenty and twenty one for Paul says now again that word now that because of what he's just written, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The sense is the law comes stealthily in to our lives and reminds us who we are. Paul in, in Romans 7 would say this. He will look at his life and he I think he's talking about as he is a Christian, not in his pre conversion state, and he's saying, "The things I want to do are the things I do not do, and the things i do i are the things are the things i do not do the things I really do and uh, yeah I think that's it. I can go look it up. But, but it'll take 10 minutes for me to find out where Romans 7 is Now, there he understands there's a part of me that does not want to obey the word of God and it's it's strong it's really strong you get caught in a lie and you try to figure out some way to spin it and most of us are tremendous politicians because we'll find a way to spin it to make us look good. When what we really ought to say is, yeah, yeah, I did it. That's mine. I own up to it. I confess. I, f- I fess up. That's, that's mine. But the law comes in to even good things and subtly, stealthily makes us sin. We learn how to covet as Paul would say because I heard the commandment you shall not covet. Grace on the other hand increases to overshadow sin. Remember the statement of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. The price has been paid. We are now guilt free. And we are now given at least in in a position, the full righteousness of Christ. And so no matter what sin we commit, grace supersedes it. Grace is more powerful. Grace is more abundant over it than the sin that we did. That's why, again, we can come freely before the throne of grace. Because that's what it is. And he does that, as the uh, verse 21 says, in order that, a little hint of grace, in order that grace rules in our new life. Where sin reigned in death, grace might must, also must reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. That grace enters and blossoms And it produces within us that right living. And that's the beauty, that's the wonder, that's the joy of grace. Uh, It's part of the work of the Holy Spirit who comes in to conform us into the image of Christ, who comes in and to give us the power to do what the Word says. But also behind that is the grace of God. And when we are justified by grace alone, that grace overcomes and watches over us. Paul would put it this way to the Colossians. Where he has been talking and is, is focusing in upon the beauty of Christ. And he's talking about his ministry. And he says, to them, that is to the Gentiles. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of, of this ministry. Which is, and I like to put a colon right Christ in you the hope of glory. That's the mystery. It's not you, it's not what you do, it's not how good you are. It is Christ in you. That's the hope of glory. The hope of being in the presence of God. The hope of having His majesty and all that He can give to us. That comes from Christ and Christ alone. And so again, the Catechism in question 63 says this How is it our good works merit nothing, while yet it is God's will to reward them in this life and in that which is to come? The reward comes not of merit, but of grace. And one of the scriptures that he used to justify this comes, it's one of my favorite scriptures from luke 17 of course i have a whole book full of favorite scriptures so i don't know which one this is luke 17 verse 7 where jesus is talking to his disciples he said will any of you one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field ah, come on one, come at once and recline at table Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Here comes a guy who's been working out in the sun sweating, you know, out in the fields. He comes in, he's dirty. He's saying, man, I wish someone would cook my food for me. And he's saying, maybe the master has done that. And I have a table, I'll sit down. And the master comes up to me, get my dinner. Set my table. You better wash your hands because I don't want to get whatever you got. You do it for me doesn't even thank him for the hours of work out in the field. You know, how many people here feel that if your boss didn't thank you for what you did, you would feel slighted? Why? I mean, that's part of our sin nature. We want to be recognized. We want to have the the thanks of those who are above us. And the master says, no, go and do your work. Why? Because you're only doing what you were commanded to do. Anything you do for God doesn't give you any extra brownie points with God because you're only doing what he commanded you to do in the first place. It's the thing you should have done without complaining, without work, without thinking about it. Boy, does that put people on edge. Because they think God ought to come and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You really did a good job today. And he simply says, well, keep going. Don't stop. When I'm done, you can have something. That's what grace is all about. And that's why anything we do has no merit before God. It's one of the problems with the Roman Catholic system. Where in the Roman Catholic system, yes, you have to believe in Christ, plus you have to do certain works. You have to be at the sacraments, you have to do what the church tells you to do, you would better be at church on Sunday or you get a little black mark in, your, in their registry. You've got to do all these works, faith of Christ simply brings you to zero. you've got to add your own righteousness, and again, how much is enough, and those things you're supposed to do and not get anything for they're simply that which you have been told to do uh, and uh, this that runs so counter to our culture and I would even say it runs counter to the church. Because if we is there are those in the church that if you're not recognized for what you do, you feel slighted, hurt, and you get into a tizzy and you say, I'm not going back there, they don't like me. No, you don't have to. Now we do it because it's a nice thing to do, but if you never got another word of praise, you're simply where you are, and you're doing what you're called to do. Okay? Yeah, well, now I've made enough enemies. (sighs) Number two. But not by a faith that... Is alone. We're justifications by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. For, advanced, for instance, in Romans 6, it begins with an objection. What shall we then say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, it sounds reasonable. If grace supersedes our sins and our unrighteousness, why don't we sin freely and sin as much as we can because we'll get more and more and more and more grace. And then in verse two, he says, by no means. I'm, I'm a little disappointed in the ESV because that's really a, uh, a calm way of saying it. One way you could translate it is, heaven forbid And it sounds like my Aunt Mary. Heaven forbid! (laughs) Or it was a God forbid. Don't even think about it. That's not it. Why? How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who have died to sin, and that's what we've done, still live into it? And then Paul goes into the sacrament of baptism and what it signifies. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, we too might walk in newness of life. Uh, partly I like this because it's, it's kind of a, a tease, because next time I teach, we're gonna start going into the sacraments and the catechism. And baptism will be the first one we deal with as we think about sacraments as a whole. But what he is saying is, baptism tells you exactly what's happened in your life. You were united with Christ in his death. It's as if you It was as if you were on the cross. And when he breathed his last, It's as if you died to your own sin and you were put in the grave. And we symbolize this when we do baptism. It doesn't matter whether it's an infant or an adult. When in baptism, and that's a nice little baptismal font back there, someday soon we're gonna have to use it. Right? (laughs) I'm looking at the kids, the people. You're all kids to me. (laughs) Those who have young children when we do it either child or adult, adults especially I've, I've done it a lot of times with children the child goes underneath the water the water is not put on the feet or the hands or the stomach you put the water on the head to show and symbolize as if they went under others who go to a river or a lake they really do get drenched they go under and as soon as a hand comes up or they come out of the water it's as if they were resurrected And that's what baptism symbolizes. You were died to sin. You went underneath. You came back up into a newness of life. And that's what Paul is talking about that in in his um, in, in using that. So why would you want to sin? So that grace can abound? No. You're dead to sin. Now That's a position. In practice, like Paul said in Romans 7, you still sin. It's part of you. It's it's dead. It doesn't have the reigning and control that it did, but you still do it. And therefore you need forgiveness. And you need to confess and repent and come before God. But you remember when you're tempted to sin, Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. I died to that. Why do I want to resurrect it? Why do I want to bring that back from the grave and harm myself? That's the kind of thing. I don't say necessarily it's going to stop you because sometimes the desire to sin is so great you do it anyway. However, if you think about it and you realize then it may slow you down to the place where you can't stop. It's kind of like the brakes on your car. There's two ways you can stop. You can hit a barrier, bingo, and you stop. Or you tap the brakes and put pressure, and it slows down to the stop sign. See? That's what you remember. I'm dead to sin, but I'm alive to Christ. And therefore, as Paul says in the last part of it, I walk in the newness of life. Previously, before you became a Christian, you walked in the deadness of sin and of law. And you learned a whole lot of things by walking that way. When you become a Christian you now walk in the newness of life. And what does that look like? Well, first of all it's a practice. There's this silly commercial for I think credit card company see how much I remember what they're trying to sell me (laughs) where the father is carrying a child and he goes through a lot of different steps and he gets home and he puts the child on the floor and the child all of a sudden walks stands up and begins to walk and the mother goes ah, and the father goes (laughs) but he begins to walk and he almost starts walking perfectly I'm going that's not right I've watched children try to walk. And the first time, they don't do it well until they practice and practice and practice. Walking the newness of life is to practice. And then there is progress. You go from stumbling and falling to where you are stronger and you are able to do that. And finally... As you grow stronger and stronger, you can go from walking to running. but there's progress, and you hope to see progress. I mean, if one of my children at the age of thirty two was still crawling around on the floor, I would be real troubled that they hadn't progressed that that far. I'd be wondering, well okay, what's wrong but there's there's progress that takes place, and there's also it's perpetual walking is something as long as you're physically able to do it all of your life you may need a cane you may need two canes you may need the support of your spouse that's what happens when you get old you live, You lean against each other and hold each other up as you walk down through the mall. but it's perpetual, it's continual you'll do it until you no longer are do, able to do it. And finally, you persevere. <coughs> you don't give up simply because your leg hurts or because you're tired. If you have to go someplace, you go someplace. I worked at summer camp. We used to take uh, field trips. We used to walk from the camp to a uh, nearby, nearby state park and uh, one of my jobs was I was, I was the uh, one who rode the dust. That is, I was the last person. I had to make sure that all the kids were in front of me. You know, and it's not too bad when they were teenagers, but when you get some of these eight, nine years old after you've done seven miles... They go, oh, I want to stop, I don't want to go, I want to stop, no, please help me. bring the truck, please bring the truck. And I'm back there, now keep on going. One more hill, one more curve, we're almost there, six miles away, we're almost there. <laughs> Persevere. Stay, keep walking until you get there, and then you get to go on the lake and have a nice swim. But that's what walking is all about that's where we walk in a newness of life you, lo- you begin to learn these things but you have to continue to grow in them over and over again and the, the faith that is not alone is demonstrating to you that you've been justified by faith alone because it is those that newness that says, I'm different than I was before. And God has justified me by faith. If this is a position, this becomes a practice. And when the practice is there, it tells you this is your position. This is who you are. So even when you're going through one of those low periods we all go through and sin seems to be piling on and you wonder, is grace really sufficient? Well, it's superabound? You just take a look at the little things that you're doing and they tell you, yes, I am justified by faith. I have a lot more to learn and to do and I have to rely upon the Holy Spirit more than I did before, but I am justified by faith alone and that faith is not alone. I see it in who I am. That's where the catechism on this day ends. But does not this doctrine make me careless and profane? No. For it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruitfulness of thanksgiving. Hmm. Thanksgiving. Thursday. It's a day that really shows where your faith is. I'm thankful I got a wife who can really cook a great turkey. Oh yeah. No, I'm thankful for a God who's given me a wife who can cook a great turkey. And she's thankful I don't have to cook the turkey. <laughs> I'm thankful for a life that has been justified by faith alone, but that is not alone. But is evident even in my worst days. It is not alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that which you've given to us so freely. Life, newness of life, your grace, the death, resurrection of your son, his life that is applied to us. Thank you, O Lord, for the constant reminders that if we are his, we are his. We do not have to perform for you for Christ has performed for us. We do show the evidence of those who with thanksgiving are producing the fruit you want in our life. And we are grateful. May we always be so. And Lord, when we are at our lowest and our weakest and when we are wondering, not only remind us of the scripture, But remind us of Christ, of who he is and what he's given to us. For we are yours and you are ours. And we ask it in his name. And all of God's people said, Amen.